all relationships require work to become truly fulfilling and productive, including marriage. This message is the third in the series, From Me to We. The message is entitled, Making Marriage Work, Part Two. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Grab your Bibles, your teaching sheets as we turn our attention this day to God's Word. We're involved in a series of messages called From Me to We, and I want to continue to talk this week, weekend as we will for the next couple of weekends about the marriage relationship, marriage and family. Let me quickly add to that. To that that uh, what I'm talking about when it comes to marriage and family applies to every relationship in life. So if you are a single adult here today, know that these things apply to you, apply to your friendships, apply to your potential future relationships, apply to your business relationships. Relational principles apply across the board, but we are specifically talking about marriage. I think one of the things that helps us to understand marriage is to realize that there are some keys that make marriage work. Sometimes it seems as though marriage is kind of a conundrum. How do we make this thing called marriage really operate the way that it should? And when we begin to get into the Bible and study God's Word, we realize that there are some truths, some principles that when you and I apply them, they actually allow us to get into a synchronization, a sense in which marriage begins to work and two people begin to work together as a team. Jesus makes reference of the principles regarding marriage in Matthew chapter 19. We read it last week. I'm going to ask you to read it again together with me today, the words of Jesus to us regarding marriage. So why don't you read with me? Let's read now from the NIV together, all campuses. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are now no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Last weekend, I talked about one particular phrase. I want to talk about that again. The two will, say it with me, become one. And the key word that I want to emphasize there, as we did last weekend as well, is the idea of a process, becoming. Becoming is not automatic. Becoming is not instantaneous. Becoming is a process that happens over time. And so oneness in a marriage results in the, as, is a result of a process of becoming, learning how to connect with one another. In other words, people don't have a successful marriage as soon as they say, I do. They have to work on it. You have to learn how to make marriage work. We talked last weekend about the first foundational principle of this, for your marriage to work, you have to bring God into your marriage. There's not going to be a successful marriage if God is not a part of it. And today I'm going to share with you two more principles that will help you and I to understand how to become one in marriage. What is this process and what are the ingredients? So today, the first thing I want to talk to you about is this very important topic here. I want you to learn that if you're going to build a solid marriage, you have to say it with me. Dismiss the myths. What you believe about anything in life is extremely important because what you believe is going to determine two basic things. Your beliefs always determine your expectations, and your beliefs determine your behavior. What you believe about something will determine what you expect from that thing, and what you believe about something will determine how you will behave towards someone or something. And so, your beliefs are extremely important. And the word myth represents the idea that you have 
a potential false set of beliefs. And many of us have a false set of beliefs regarding marriage. We don't believe what marriage is effectively. We haven't learned really what marriage is. And so we build these things in our mind that we think marriage is, but it's really not what God created marriage to be. And so I'm going to walk you today through some of these myths of marriage. I'm going to share with you 17 myths. You see them on your notes there. I'm sure that when you see them, you thought, my goodness, will we ever get through all this information today? Put on your seatbelts. We're going to fly through this. It's going to be very helpful to you. So let's take a look at 17 wrong beliefs about marriage. I'm going to ask you to read them with me as we walk through them. Number one, the first wrong belief about marriage, read it together with me, marriages are made in heaven. No, marriages are not made in heaven. Marriages are made on earth. Marriages are made down here. Now, while we certainly want to pray about the person we're going to marry and ask for God's guidance, we must understand that just because God brought somebody into our life doesn't mean that that marriage is going to automatically be successful or automatically be easy. Ask Adam and Eve. If there was ever a marriage made in heaven, it was Adam and Eve. But by the time you get to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve have marriage problems. They're blaming each other. They're living in fear and their relationship. And so we must understand that marriages are not made in heaven. Marriages are made where? On the earth. That is, you've got to put the work in down here. And so don't think of it as something that's just way up there somewhere. I either have it or I don't know it's something that you and I have to work on. Number two, second myth. Read together with me. Marriage will make me happy. No, it will not. Okay. Marriage will not make you happy. You're sitting back saying, well, I'm just not really happy. One day I'll be happy when I get married. No, if you're not happy now, you're not going to be happy when you're married. I'll tell you what makes a happy marriage, two happy people, okay? And so you need to bring happiness into your relationship with you. And so if you're expecting marriage to be that, that silver bullet that makes everything work in your life and make you happy, you're going to be disappointed. The next one's very similar to it. The third one, read together, marriage will make me whole. No, marriage is not going to make you whole. If you're broken in your life in some way and your life feels like it's not a, you're not a whole person, you need to get as well as you can before you get married because wholeness, you want to come into marriage in, uh, as a whole person, yeah, that your life has functionality. You don't have to be married to be whole. All you singles today, if you're not married, understand something. You don't have to wait till you get married to be a whole person. You're already a whole person. All the unmarried said, amen, I'm already whole, okay? And so you don't have to wait for that. Marriage will not make you whole. Marriage does not complete you. Marriage complements you. There's a difference in completion and complimenting. No, you should be complete in who you are with your identity, your worth, your value, and then you come into a marriage relationship, and then that provides a complementation to who you are. It adds value and help to your life, but it does not complete you. Number four, read together with me. Here we go. You ready? People miraculously improve the moment they say, I do. No, they don't. A lot of people say, well, you know what? I've got some issues with this person, but I'm going to marry them anyway because I know that when I marry them, I just believe they're going to get better. No, you don't marry on that basis. If you marry believing that someone's going to change when they get married, so magically saying I do doesn't change a person, okay? 
So you want to make sure that there's much of the person that you want them to be. Doesn't mean that someone's not going to grow after they get married, but the key thing is to not count on a ceremony to change a person, okay? Let's go to the next one, similar to it. This is number five. Read together with me. My primary job in marriage is to improve or change my spouse. No, it is not, okay? A lot of people get married and say, you know what, my job here is I got to change that man. I got to change that woman. Let me tell you, that's not your job. You didn't sign up for the job to change somebody else. No, if that's been your job since you got married today, you need to submit your resignation. Okay. You say, no, my job is not to change that person. My job is to work on me. Next weekend, my topic is going to be, it's all about you. I'm going to talk about, talk about some of those principles. But your primary job in marriage is to, improve, is to improve yourself, not to improve or change your spouse. Let's go to number six. Read with me. Here we go. Number six, great marriages never have problems or conflicts. That is a myth. It is not true. Every marriage has problems in every marriage has conflicts. If you meet someone that says, we don't have any problems in our marriage, we've never had a conflict, they have a bigger problem, and that is lying, okay? That's their big problem, okay? So great marriages, you can have a great marriage and still have problems in your marriage. You can have a great marriage and still have conflict. Why? Because they're two different people. You've got to realize this is what life is. And so don't just all of a sudden say, we've got a horrible marriage because we've got problems. We have a horrible marriage because we have some conflict. No, you have a normal marriage. Every marriage has problems and every marriage will have conflicts. Read the next one. Here we go. Marriage will take care of my loneliness. That is a myth. No, it will not. It's not going to cure your loneliness. Now, there's a benefit for marriage in terms of some level of companionship, but I will also tell you this, that in marriage, when the marriage is not working well and when uh, people aren't getting along with each other, you'll never be any lonelier than in those moments. So if you're coming into a marriage thinking this person is going to meet all these needs in me and going to help me never feel lonely again, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Number eight, read this one together. Here we go. My spouse should always know my needs and meet them. A lot, of got, a lot of folks get married and their expectation is that this person is supposed to know everything I'm feeling, what I'm feeling it, and I never have to tell them if they really love me, they would know, Okay. If they really loved me, they would know exactly what I need or what I need for different situations. I wouldn't have to communicate that to them. They would, they would automatically know exactly what's going on inside of me. In other words, what you married, you wanted to marry a mind reader, okay? And it's unfair to ask anybody to read your mind. You can't even read your own mind, Okay. There are times you don't even know what you're thinking, and so if you're expecting somebody else to read your mind, to always know what you're feeling, always know what your needs are, that is absolutely ridiculous. It is a myth, but a lot of people go into marriage with this kind of an expectation. And then number nine, read this one together. Here we go. You ready? Having children will make our marriage better. No, it won't, okay? A lot of folks say, you know what? Our marriage is stressed, and you know what we need? We need kids. What? Our marriage is stressed. What do we need? Kids. Let me tell you something. Kids represent. And responsibility equals. 
right? Okay. Yeah, okay. So I'm all for kids. I believe in them, okay? I think it's a great thing to have kids, okay? It's an awesome thing. We're going to talk about parenting as a part of this series and why, the value of kids and pouring into kids. But don't think kids are going to solve a marriage. They're not going to make a marriage better. They're going to provide a whole different dimension of challenge to your marriage. And what happens a lot of times, if you're not ready for that stress, it can actually become a stress fracture in your relationship. All right, number 10, the 10th thing. Told you we're moving through these very quickly. Together, physical appearance doesn't matter after I'm married. I got married. I'm just going to let it go. Okay. Okay. I got you now. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Okay. Don't ask me to look good anymore. We did this thing. It's done. Here, you got what you're looking at. Okay. Okay. No. Physical appearance does matter after marriage. You want to continue to be the best, best version of you that you can possibly be. Why? Because it's a gift that you give your spouse. You give your spouse this gift of being the best person that you can be in all realms, spirit, soul, and body. Here's our 11th one. Together, love is all I need. No, love is not all you need. How many appreciate food? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you like to have a roof over your head, right? And your bills paid and all those kind of things. Love doesn't pay your bills, okay? Love doesn't feed your tummy, okay? Love is a great feeling, okay? But love, and it might produce some good actions at times, but the reality is you need a lot more than love to make a marriage work. We're going to talk more about what is, it, what is required in that regard. Let's go to number 12, the 12th myth of a marriage Together, here we go. Communication and intimacy should be spontaneous. Oh, you know what? If we're really a great couple, we don't have to plan any time to talk. We just talk. Okay. We don't have to plan intimacy. It just happens to us. We just, we just have this, this connection. We're, we're soulmates, okay? And you expect this to occur, and I will tell you something. Communication and intimacy is not going to happen in your life without intention. You have to plan it. You have to set aside aside time to communicate and time for intimacy. You have to schedule it into your life. And it doesn't sound very romantic to schedule time for communication and time for intimacy, but that's how you make sure it's included in your life. You schedule these kind of things. My wife and I, for many, many years now, we try to have at least one day a week or one night a week that we have a date night. And by the way, let me say this. You need to continue to date after you're married, okay? Don't stop dating after you get married. Continue today. We have a date night, and so we spend some time together. We do something together. It gives us opportunity for communication and intimacy. It is planned. It is something that we establish together. Let me encourage you. You say, well, I can't afford a date night. You don't have to spend lots of money on a date night. It could be simply going and walking in a park together, doing something that costs you absolutely no money at all. But even if it does cost you money to have a date night, it is cheaper than a divorce attorney. So the investment that you make will pay off in the days to come. All right, let's take a look at number 13. You ready for this one? Living together before marriage is a... No, it's a myth. Now, I could talk 
And I'm sure you would expect me to do so. I could talk about this principle from the Bible and the importance of purity and those kind of things. But I, I think I'm going to come to a scripture verse in just a moment that will highlight that. But I want to give you some research. Are you ready for some research about cohabitation, living together before marriage? Let me give you what some experts have discovered about couples who cohabit before marriage. They live together before marriage. According to certain research projects, they've determined that couples who live together before marriage tend to be less satisfied with their marriage after they get married and more likely to divorce. Think about it. You think it would be less likely to divorce, but actually cohabitation makes couples less, less li- more likely to divorce than less likely to divorce. It is not a healthy thing to do. And of course, this re- reinforces the fact that the Bible has taught us the value of purity before marriage, the value of entering into a marriage with vows before God that represents a commitment. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So it's a myth that is very prevalent in our culture today that you and I as Christian believers need to be aware of, and we need to debunk that myth, and we need to live differently. Amen? 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 All right, good. All right. Kind Kind of died out on me there for a moment, okay? Let's go to the next one. Here we go. Marriage preparation is a waste of time. We are in love, okay? We have a marriage preparation course here called Prep for Marriage, Preparation for Marriage. I think it's about a 10 to 12-week class, if I remember correctly. And I have I've had couples say to me before, Pastor, why do we have to take that 10 weeks? I mean, before we get married here at the church, you're asking us to take 10 weeks of marriage preparation. Why? We're in love. And I said, that's the very reason you need to take it, okay? Because you're, you're on drugs right now, okay? Okay? <laughs> You don't even realize what's going on in your relationship. If you're telling me we're in love, you're just, you're, you don't get it. So you need to understand there's some things. I tell you what, my wife and I have been married for 41 years. Back when we got married, there was very little information about prep for marriage. I wish we would have had an opportunity for a prep for marriage class back then because it would have saved us about a decade of struggle with one another, okay? Learning some things that we could have learned uh, if we'd been in a class of that nature. And so investing that time in the, on the front end is very valuable. In fact, one research project Listen closely. One research project says this. It reported that 80%, are you listening? 80% of couples that participated in pre-marriage training stayed together. I was waiting for a wow right there, okay? 80% of the couples who participate in some kind of pre-marriage training, they actually stay together. Their marriage actually ends up working. Let's go to number 15. The 15th thing here, 15 Fifteenth thing here, my past, together my past doesn't affect me or my past will always haunt me. The key is to realize that when you come into your marriage, you've got to deal, you've got to be aware of your past, okay? Because you're bringing a past with you into a marriage relationship. Some people, some people come into a marriage and say, well, you know what? My past is not a big deal. It's not going to affect me. Other people come in and say, my past is always going to be a problem, and they bring that in. But I will tell you this, your past is always going to affect your present but it does not have to dictate your future. Say that again, all right? Your past will affect your present, but it does not have to dictate your future if you will deal with your past. You've got to deal with those issues in your life that might be affecting you, the past relationships you've had, the past disappointments you've had, the past stuff that you're bringing with you. If, you don't, if you're not aware of that and dealing with it, it's going to have some kind of effect upon you. Let's go to the next one together. Here we go. Men can't Everybody together? Men can't understand women, and women can't understand men. How many of you think that's true? It's a myth. Men can understand women, 
and women can't understand men. So I said, you don't know my wife, okay? You don't know my husband. No, it's true. You can't. You just got to understand some things about them, okay? You've got to learn that men and women are different more than just biologically. They're different in the way they think and the way they process information. And so you and I can learn that in the gender differences that exist. Several years ago, my wife and I landed upon a particular study that she shared with me about the differences between men and women. Let me share with you the differences in terms of how men and women process information. According to this article, and according to her sharing with me, men process information very much like a waffle, okay? So men are waffles, not in the sense that they waffle on their decision-making, but they, they, are, they deal with information in boxes. In other words, when my wife shares something with me, I'm immediately looking for the box in my mind to put it in because I want to put that box there and I got it because I'm going to go to work trying to figure out what's the point of this conversation, right? You with me, men? What is she trying to say to me, okay? What is the point? Why are we having this conversation, okay? What is the problem I need to solve? What is the thing I need to fix? What is it that I need to do? So she starts talking and my little waffle brain starts working. Which box does this go in, all right? Are you men with me here, okay? I gotta, give me a problem to solve. Give me something, just tell me where we're going. What's the point? Why are we talking right now, right? You guys with me, right, okay? Why are we talking right now, okay? Where are we going with this, okay? Because I don't wanna go if I don't know where it's going. All the men said, all right. I don't know where it's going. I can't handle it if it gets outside of my box, okay? Right? So where are we going with this information? What are we going to do with it, okay? So I'm trying to figure out my little box, and I'm going to put it in in my mind. Here's the other thing about that little box. That little box means that I can't multitask. If I'm thinking about one thing, don't ask me to think about something else. I'm thinking about that box in my waffle, okay? And so that's why men, generally speaking, are not good multitaskers. That's why when a guy is on a destination driving somewhere, don't even ask to go to the bathroom. No, we're going. We're not stopping, okay? Right? I, my waffle connection is going. We, I know the destination. Hold it. Okay. Right? Are you with me here, guys? Come on, are you with me? Now. Women process information differently. We have a waffle brain. Now, my wife shared this. I'm not making this up. My wife told me. I still can't understand exactly why she told me this information, but she told me this information. But women have a different kind of brain. They have a spaghetti brain. I mean, everything connects. She can be talking about the weather, and then she's talking about kids, and then she's talking about dinner, and then she's talking about work, and then she's talking, I'm like, what? Are you with me? Okay. Like, how did we get from the weather to over here? What makes perfect sense to me, she says, okay? Because the way, because women are highly connected in the way they link things, Okay. They're relational, they're very connected in the way they link things, they think differently, okay? So I just gotta let her talk until I find out what box I'm gonna put it in, okay? Right, okay? I just gotta let her talk until I get my box right, okay? You wanna know the difference between men and women? Why don't you ladies bring your purse up here right now? Let me open it up. No, don't do that, really. You ever looked inside a woman's purse? I mean, 
Everything is in there, okay? Every, I, mean, I mean, anything you can imagine. She's got a whole drugstore in there, okay? She's got new tissues and old tissues. I'm not sure even why the old tissues are there, okay? But they're there, okay? She's got pictures. She's got all kind of stuff. I mean, anything, you could, you could travel around the world three times just with your wife's purse. You could do that, okay? Because everything's in there. You ever notice what a man carries with him? A little wallet, about like that, okay? You know why? Because women are relational. They have this idea of caring for. They have a different approach to things. And men think differently. But when you begin to understand this, it begins to put perspective on the relationship and perspective on your interaction. Let's go to the next one. Here we go. This is the last one. A myth. Read together. If marriage doesn't satisfy me, what? I'll leave. It's a myth. It's a myth, it's a bad way to think, what I mean by that, because what it does is undermines one of the most important, significant aspects of marriage that we'll talk about here in just a moment. All these 17 things that I've, I've given you. Now, by the way, when I first started this message, I had 40 of them, so I've actually uh, cur- curled them down, cur- curved them down to about 17. We could talk about a lot more that we could, uh, could discuss. But I want you to look with me now at a couple of verses in the Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse number 2. I'm going to read this from New Living Translation. You'll see it on the, on the screens up here. And then we're going to read it from the uh, Passion Translation. Then we'll move on to the second point today. Paul the Apostle writes and says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Says, don't, don't be like the world around you. Don't buy into the myths of the world around you. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, what you believe, what your, what your thought process is. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, would you read this with me from the Passion Translation? Here we go. Let's read together. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in God's eyes. The point I want you to note here, when it comes to thinking about marriage or thinking about anything, but in this this context, we're talking about marriage and relationships. What does it say? Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the, what? Culture. Don't let the culture define for you what marriage is all about, but instead be inwardly transformed, how? By the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. That is, you've got to debunk the myths. Don't believe things that are not true about marriage as well as other things in your life. So the first step in this process today we're looking at is to, d- to dismiss the myths. And now I want to talk to you about the second thing that is important today, and that's the important aspect of learning to count the cost. Say that with me, count the cost. So you dismiss the myth- myths and you count the cost if your marriage is going to work. Jesus gave us a very important lesson in building in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30. I want to read this for you. Suppose, these are the words of Jesus, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. So Jesus is talking here about building. Correct? He's talking about building a tower. We could say, suppose one of you wants to build a marriage. Suppose once if you want, some, one of you wants to build a business. Suppose one of you wants to build, he uses a tower, he uses an illustration. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? 
For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying the person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus says that anything you want to build, if you build anything in life associated with building is a cost. Anything you build, there's a cost that goes along with it. And when it comes to marriage, the cost of marriage is making a commitment. That's the cost of marriage. And a commitment is defined in two basic terms. It's what you exclude from your life and what you include in your life. That's a commitment. I'm choosing, based upon the priorities now of my life, to pay a price by including things that I haven't been including and excluding things that I have been including in my life. I'm paying the price. There is a commitment. When you commit your life to God, we talk about committing your life to God. When you commit your life to God, it means that you're now going to include God in your life. You did not include Him before, but now you're going to include God in your life, and you're going to exclude some things that you used to do that you're not going to do anymore, some places you used to go, some people you used to be involved in. Now you're going to push them away from you, out of your life, so that God now has central place in your life. Now, the same is true when it comes to marriage. When you, make a, when you commit yourself to marriage, you're going to include now your spouse in your life at a high priority, and you're going to exclude other people from your life that you used to have relationship with, and that, that person now is going to be the central portion apart from God in your life. So there's an inclusion and an exclusion, and the way that this starts out in a marriage is through something called vows. When you stand before a minister or you begin the process of marriage, you will exchange vows. And the vows represent commitment. It represents what you're going to now include in your life and what you're going to exclude in your life. I've done marriage ceremonies for many, many years now. And when I do a marriage ceremony, I always use the same set of vows. I've not changed this for decades because I believe these vows are so powerful. I'll have a couple stand before me in, in the presence of the, of, the, of the bridal party and all those who've gathered for the event, the wedding ceremony, and I will say, I want you to repeat after me. And I'll give them these words, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they'll repeat back, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I, whatever the name is, take you, whatever his or her name is, to be my husband or wife. And they'll repeat that after me. And then I say, now repeat this, to have and to hold from this day forward to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. Listen again. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I take you to be my husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by the next person that comes along. Until we're parted by the day I don't feel like being married to you anymore. No, I have them to repeat that until we are parted by death. And then I give them one, one last phrase to say, this is my solemn vow. That as I stand before God today in this marriage ceremony, husband, wife, I'm making a vow to you, to one another, a vow in the presence of these witnesses, but most importantly, I'm making a vow to God until death do us part. And you say, well, pastor, does that mean that all marriages have to stay until death do us part? 
I'm not here today to talk about the exceptions or situations where there's, uh, there's, there's domestic violence and things that go on of that nature that can dissolve a relationship. There's infidelity that can, distra- that, that, that can dissolve a relationship. There are various things that can impact a relationship and impact the commitment that are exceptions associated with this. But I would say that generally speaking, as you're walking your walk out as just a normal kind of marriage situation, you need to understand that what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder the words of Jesus he gave us. And so we need to make a commitment to count the cost. Now, what are the costs involved in commitment? Let me quickly walk you through these eight things. We're going to cover them very, very quickly. It means, number one, you have to remove the escape thoughts and clauses and conversations. Because you're not spending your time talking about, well, if you don't do this, I'm leaving. If you don't do that, I'm leaving. I don't, I don't like you anymore. And this, these escape clauses, I'm out of here. If we don't get this thing changed, you want to take that out of your conversations because it's undermining your commitment. It's undermining your vows. Then second of all, remove the influence of anything draining your attention or affection. If it's somebody else or something else is draining your attention or your affection from your spouse, you need to get rid of it. You need to move that from your life. And then number three, remember your vows. Just at times go back and remember what you said to this person, the vow that you made before God and the vow that you made to them. And then elevate your commitment over your emotions. This is important because your commitment is more important than your feelings. Your feelings are going to change. Not every day will you feel like being married to that person. Some days you'll wake up and say, I can't believe I married that person. But here's the thing. They're thinking the same thing about you. (laughs) They're thinking the same thing about you. And here you are. And so commitment doesn't go on the basis of feeling. It goes on the basis of a vow that you've made. And then number five, adjust your attitudes about relationship problems that arise. Let me see if I can help you with this one. This really helped my wife and I. It's helped us begin to help us make some changes in the way that we interact with one another. This is the waffle guy. And this is the spaghetti girl. When we first got married, and for a number of years in our marriage, when a problem would arise or a conflict would arise, we had the tendency that most couples have, and that's the tendency to, to do this, to blame one another. Well, you're at fault. No, you're at fault. No, you're at fault. No, you're at fault. If you do this, this will be better. No, well, you need to do that. I'd do that if you do this. Anybody been in that circle before? Okay. And then after extended period of years, because you, you grow in marriage and you have this kind of tension that exists there, we, we learned something that really helped us. We learned that we could do a whole lot better if we would stop blaming each other for our problems and begin to make the problem the problem. So that instead of attacking each other, when we had something that came up, we would attack the problem. And then all of a sudden, we are drawn together in a unified force to deal with the problem instead of dealing with the tension between the two of us or the situation that exists. And what we've learned over the years is that some problems... I want you to pay close attention to this. Some problems are, and some problems are unsolvable. 
And you've got to figure out which problems are going to change and which ones are not, okay? There's certain things about each one of us that, you know, you, you, you are, I mean, you, you're going to be a certain way in terms of the personality that you have, and you have to make adjustments, and your spouse will as well. And so you've got to learn to address the solvable problems and accept the unsolvable problems and learn to manage the tension because every situation is not a problem to be solved. It is a tension to be managed, and you're working together on the problem and not attacking one another. I will tell you that once we did that, once we've come to that, as, as we continue to practice that, we don't always get it right. Okay, sometimes we still get back into this pattern, as all human beings do. But when we focus this way, it makes all the difference in the world. And that leads me to the next one. Number six, identify and adopt, adopt a common goal. And the common goal is, what's that word there? Teamwork. Okay, you're not enemies, you're friends. You're working together on the same team for the same accomplishments. Then demonstrate your commitment through investment. We've talked about investing your time and your energy. And finally, communicate your commitment in words. Let me conclude with Proverbs 18, verse 21. It's going to be on the screen. Would you read it together with me? Words kill. Words give life. They either poison, they're either poison or fruit. You choose. What does it say there? Words do what? Kill or words give life. You know what undermines many commitments in a marriage? Words, which is what you say. How you say what you say. If you say something like this, I can't stand you. I don't want to be around you anymore. When I said that, what happened in this room just then? What happened when you heard those words? Immediately, a dark cloud came all through this room, did it not? Did you feel the harshness of that? Did I say, you know what, I really appreciate you. Yeah, we have some differences, but you're amazing. I thank you for everything that you do. You're, you're awesome. Thank you for the contribution you make to my life. I really value everything that you do. And even though we've had some disagreements, you know what? We're on the same team. Do you see the difference, the feeling that's different in the room just then? Okay, Words kill and words give life. And I will tell you something. If you just change that one thing in your marriage, that one thing, just what you say and how you say it, it would be amazing how it reinforce the kind of commitment that will build strong marriages. Jesus said that we are, as husbands and wives, to become one. It's a process. How do we become one? We put God at the center of our life. We make sure that we bring God into our marriage. And then we dismiss all these myths that we carry around with us. And then we count the cost of saying, I am all in in this relationship. I'm in with my commitment. Next weekend, we're going to talk about this, this next principle. I'm going to talk about it's all about you. We're going to take a look at how God works in your life to make your marriage better. Would you bow your heads together with me as we pray? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we had today to reflect upon your word, to just think about our marriages and our relationships. And Father, we know that you're instructing us, you're guiding us, you're teaching us. And Father, we want to learn, we want to apply these principles in our life. I pray you'll take them. Help us to take them and help us to massage them into the way we think every day. Help us to dismiss every myth. Help us to count the cost. Help us to be committed people to the homes and families you've called us to. For that, we thank you in Jesus' name. 
I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus, I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. and You begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.